Last week, um, as we completed chapter 2, we looked at the outcome of what I call do-it-yourself religion. Um, Paul talked about engaging in practices which promise to overthrow the indulgence of the flesh, keeping ceremonial rules which have the appearance of wisdom, observing regulations that we think will improve our standing with God, what we saw is that none of that is actually effective at uh, subduing or controlling the instinct of the human heart, which is to be rebellious and self-satisfied. That's what our hearts are, left to themselves. Um, That's the human condition. Out of the framework of obedience in a framework of rebellion against the one who created us. Um, The tendency among professed Christians, so we're saying those who have been given a new heart, the tendency among us is to constantly try to prove our worth rather than admit our need. And so the epistle is written to accomplish two things in chapter 2. Number one, obviously, is to grow in grace those who are already in Christ and to grow us out of this infernal desire to add something to Jesus whereby we can impress God, something that we do, right? And then second, to, to strum the chords of the hearts of those who are lost and unbelieving, to arouse this sense in, inside of them that they are created, that they do have a Father in heaven, and all that they need to do in order to ignite the fire of that relationship is believe as we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ, not add a bunch of religious uh, activity to the gospel. So what, what, what the reality is, uh, we still sin, right? All, everybody in this room, saved or unsaved, you, you sin. Uh, you don't have to admit it out loud, but I know that you do because I've been going through your mail. Um, <clears throat> when a Christian acts, acts like an unchanged person, Usually the first stop when you get on that train of misbehaving and sinning, the first stop is we, 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 we start to think that we need to do something in order to impress God and convince him or reconvince him of our loyalty and commitment to him. Because right? now I look at what I've just done. That is not a reflection of the gratitude and, and joy that I have over my salvation. And I'm not ready to say the reason that I did that is because I've never really believed the gospel. But as I'm looking at it, my instinct, the first thing I want to do is like undo it or cover it up at, at, at worst. Right. So uh, what Colossians 2 teaches us is that in reality, activities contrived by us, things that we come up with, do-it-yourself renovation of the soul, otherwise known as self-made religion, is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So it doesn't matter what you just did, okay? It doesn't matter what you just did. If what you do next, assuming this was bad behavior, morally speaking, in conflict with what God has commanded. 
doesn't matter what you just did. If the next thing that you do is contrive some means of handling it yourself, you're just setting yourself up for something worse down the road. Attempts to impress God with acts of religious activity amount to putting the cart in front of the horse. God calls us to be fully preoccupied with Jesus. That's what he wants. The pursuit of religion and religious practices has been upended in favor of a real relationship with your Father in heaven. That's what God is calling us to. Part of what we're going to see in chapter 3 is how to go about setting things in their proper order. Now, it's important that I say this. I don't mean to say how we go about setting things in their proper order. I mean to say how we go about understanding what it looks like when things are in their proper order. Rightly putting priorities of theology and doctrine in the order that God has put them. So for the Christian, at the same time, we rejoice that we're no longer under the law. We know intuitively that there are things we should be doing and there are things we absolutely should not be doing. And the word of God all throughout, including the law, guides us in acts of obedience. So my justification is not the result of the law. However, I know what I'm supposed to be doing and what I'm not supposed to be doing. And God tells me where I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing and not supposed to be doing, right? Okay. <clears throat> Made me nervous there. Uh, Colossians 3, 1. If you've been raised with Christ, and it should be since, okay? Since, therefore, you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. I don't actually believe that it's my job to captivate you and capture your attention and make you focus so that you can learn from the Bible. I don't. But I think it helps. Right? If I'm not up here just droning on as I look down at a manuscript. So... uh, Sometimes I, I'm a little too imaginative um, in the way that I seek to capture your attention, and I don't realize until I've spent the entire week thinking about it, uh, I don't realize until Saturday when I sit down to bang out my outline that th- this illustration is out of control until it's too late, right? And I don't have time to come up with another one. In this case... <clears throat> I didn't need much time because something jumped out of the text at me yesterday after I decided not to go with my original illustration. And here's what jumped out at me. Uh, I guess you could look at what I just said as an excuse for why this isn't that good, or you could look at it as an opportunity to praise God for giving me this in the last minute. All right? um, I think it's, <clears throat> it's probably been in existence for much longer, but the first for sure, recorded game of hide-and-seek was played around 100 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're gauging that based on the writings of a fellow named Julius Pollux in the second century and um, a painting discovered at the Herculaneum, which dates to around the same period. The original game 
was played in much the same way that it's played today. So you've got one person who closes their eyes or covers their eyes and counts to a pre-agreed upon number while everybody else who's playing scurries away and tries to remain concealed. When the player who is it completes the, the previously agreed upon amount of counting, they then say, ready or not, here I come, and start going around the, the predetermined field of play trying to find everybody who has hidden. While the seeker is seeking, hiders who are hiding are free to make a run for home base. Uh, and if they make it, they are safe and cannot be tagged or caught. Or you can remain hiding and just hope that you're not found. So the game can end one of several ways. Most commonly, the person who is it finds or manages to tag all the players. And the person who was found first is now it. And the person who was found last wins. The youth group variant of this game is called sardines. And the way that's played is there is one hider and everybody else is a seeker. Uh, the first person to find the one hiding must join them in hiding uh, and, and so on and so on until everybody is crammed into the original hiding place like sardines. And the last one to find everybody is the loser who has to hide first next. Um, the version played in my house involves the dog. <laughs> so a toy is thrown uh, into the other room in an effort to distract her and she... She runs uh, to find it, as is her fetching instinct. And then so whoever threw the toy has to sprint somewhere and hide quickly out of sight. And then hilarity ensues for everybody that's observing this as the dog prances around nervously looking for who threw the toy. Um, we all get to have a laugh. Eventually she finds the person hiding and then she's quite pleased with herself. As an adult, <clears throat> as an adult, I have spent more than my fair share of time crouched just around a corner or just out of sight waiting for a friend or loved one to walk past so that I can jump out and scare them and, and observe the fight, flight, or freeze response happen because um, I'm immature. Hiding is an instinct for almost all creatures on earth, and some creatures are given special abilities along these lines, like um, <clears throat> the, what is it, the chameleon and the cuttlefish can change the color of their exterior to blend in with the surroundings. Um, humans don't have innate abilities like that, uh, right? But we do have the instinct. Take Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 8 where uh, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So guilt <clears throat> and shame lead to hiding because we think, or we may know in some cases, that if we are concealed, suffering can be avoided. So if I'm guilty or I'm ashamed, as long as I'm hidden... Suffering can be avoided. Fear drives us to hide because something which threatens us, if it can't find us, can't harm us. So these three 
you know, fairly negative emotions that we experience all push us instinctively in the direction of hiding away. It's interesting to me that humans play hide and seek. Why why would you want to generate within yourself that sense of of fear or the the sense of anticipation that comes from, am I going to be found? Or the sense of anticipation you get when you are the seeker, am I going to find them? Uh, It's almost like we want the feeling of suspense, right? So we play the game. Children play it for, I'm sure, all kinds of reasons. I also think we enjoy the thrill of seeking something and finding it. Fair enough? In stark contrast to do-it-yourself religion and its regulations, what we have in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, which we haven't read all of yet, are two activities the Holy Spirit calls us to do. First, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Second, set your mind on things that are above. And there are three questions that are worth answering in order to comprehend what it is that this passage is teaching. Here are the three questions. One, what are the things above where Christ is? What are the things above where Christ is? Two, how do we seek them? That we are to seek them, let's just say, granted. How do we seek them? Third, what does it mean that our lives are hidden with Christ in God? So the three questions are, what are the things that are above where Christ is? How do we seek them? And what does it mean that our lives are hidden with Christ in God? Watch me kick that over. So let's address these real quickly. What are we supposed to be seeking? Anybody know? The things above where Christ is, what's the first thing we should be seeking? There you go. The soul which has become convinced that Jesus is Lord and Savior, for that soul a relentless pursuit has begun. Before We chased every passing pleasure, every indulgence, but contrary to rigorous, frenetic religious activity, which the teachers in Colossae were prescribing in order to subdue the flesh's insatiable appetite for personal pleasure, Paul prescribes the pursuit of God. And here it's critical that we understand, listen to me, we do not pursue God because he's fleeing from us. We pursue him because he is leading us. Huge difference in the posture of your heavenly father. When he is looking back at you and motioning you along, you must pursue him. It's not like he's hiding from you, darting back and forth across the trail. If you want to kill sin in your life, you must meet Jesus by faith continually. This is first. You've got to to put aside your instinct to hide. Seek Christ. Then, and only then, can you seek the second thing, which is all that pleases Christ. Okay, so I've said it 14 times already this morning. I'm going to say it one more time because half of you are all, you're, you're at work tomorrow or you're back at work Wednesday or Thursday last week. The instinct 
of every human heart, when it is a Christian heart, when you've sinned, the instinct is hiding. You know that I'm right because of Genesis 3.8. What did Adam and Eve do? They hadn't even interacted with God. They just ate from the tree of which he said, don't eat. And then as soon as they hear him coming, they hide. Had he changed? No. So why is he suddenly a threat to them? Because they changed. So when we sin, that's our instinct too. And what the gospel is calling you to do is do not follow that instinct. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, which means first and foremost, engage with Jesus Christ by faith regularly. Regularly. Well, you don't understand. I just sinned. I'm especially gross right now to a perfect and holy God. Fine. I'll even grant you that you're right. You're especially gross right now. But God's directive does not say, Unless you've just sinned, in which case you need to give me some time to cool off before you show your face. That's not what he says. He says, keep on seeking the things that are above where Christ is. And the first thing that's where Christ is, is Christ. So we seek him. The second thing are all the things which please Christ. We're putting these things in order. First is Christ, then the things that please Him. Now, it's easy, thankfully, this is an intertwining weave. The things that please Christ and Christ are not like very dynamic at all. It's almost the same thing. So what pleases Christ? Listen to this. I'm going Old Testament to like surprise you. Hosea 6.6, which is definitely OT, says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Consider when God said this. What's still in place? What is fully 100% in place when Hosea is told by God to speak thus to the people? Look right at me. Don't worry about the baby. When God said, speak thus to the people, I desire loving kindness, steadfast love, not sacrifice. Well, what's in place is the ceremonial law, the whole sacrificial system, the Mosaic law, the whole economy from which people wrongly get works-based righteousness. That's all installed. Christ hasn't come and fulfilled it yet. We don't have Hebrews saying if the, if the blood of bulls and goats were able to redeem sinners, then there'd still be a sacrifice for sin. We're still killing bulls and goats and doves and, and sheep, right? And yet God says, what I desire, what I want, is steadfast love, not sacrifice. I want the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Think about that. In the midst of the temple system being fully operational, what God says is, I would rather my people know me than do burnt offerings. In Matthew 8, <clears throat> more familiar passage, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, this is Matthew 8, 5, a centurion came forward to him 
appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. And he said, I will come and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I've said this before. I don't know how many times, but I know I've said it before. It bears repeating. There are two things I'm aware of that Jesus marveled at in his time on the earth. Belief and unbelief. So what pleases Jesus? Keep on seeking the things that are above where Christ is. The things that are above are Christ and then all that pleases him. That's what's above. And we don't mean geographically above. Higher, more noble things. Keep on seeking those things. What pleases Jesus? Well, so far he said, I desire kesed, which is steadfast love, covenant faithfulness. I desire that my people would know me more than I desire burnt offerings. And he desires faith. He's pleased by and marvels at in his humanity, faith. Faith is that which most pleases God. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. So it states it in the negative. You want to please Jesus? Here's how you do it. Believe in him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So faith is, which, is, is that which most pleases God. And, and we, like, <laughs> so does it not stand to reason then that you would want to have more of it? More faith? How do you, how do you increase your faith? Keep on seeking the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. And all those things that please him are there with him. So Colossians 3 is calling us to seek the things above, higher, more valuable, which obviously means Christ himself, and all the things that please him. Follow him, <clears throat> pursue him, which strengthens your faith, and meet with him whenever you can. Second question we're going to answer. How do we seek Christ and what pleases him? I forgot to write it down, and I don't remember the answer. <laughs> Just kidding. <clears throat> Second question we're seeking to answer. First one is, what are we supposed to seek, right? Christ and the things that please him. Second question, how do we go about doing that? So let's consider some parallel passages. Romans 8.5 says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds 
on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Yeah? And we would say, oh, that makes perfect sense because when I fill my mind with nonsense that's passing away, I tend to become preoccupied with things that don't matter. I tend to be more susceptible to unbelief. I tend to be more susceptible to doubt and discouragement and dismay. I tend to be more susceptible to the decaying of the faith that I had seen being constructed in my own heart and mind. But when I open my Bible and read it and pray and trust and believe, I tend to find that I'm not overly interested in the things of the world that are passing away. Now, I live on earth. The rest of you do too, whether you realize it or not. So when I'm at work, I have to think about things on earth. I have to give attention to what I'm working on, lest I mess it up. Because quoting Bible verses at my boss after I break something is not going to help my case or the cause of Christ, right? So setting your mind on things which are above where Christ is or setting your minds on the things of the flesh can boil down to Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there is a There is an expectation built into the scriptures that you are going to have to engage in a process of mental renewal on a regular basis. It is not something that happens once. It's something that has to happen over and over and over and over and over again. So when you get home from work after killing it and crushing it and everybody thinks you're amazing and your family's like not that impressed, guess what you need to do? to renew your mind in spiritual things. In fact, I would advise doing it on the way home. Hmm. So renewal means renovation. Perhaps like me, you've seen these. They've become increasingly popular over the last couple of years because I keep seeing more of them. These videos of some, you know, guy with all the tools I've ever wanted restoring some antique piece of machinery like an apple peeler or something that it's like got cranks and gears and but it looks like it just came up out of the Hudson and it's all rusted out and rotten and you think this is just melt it down scrape off the dross and make something else but these guys will carefully disassemble these pieces of ancient machinery and down to every last little rivet and screw and then they sandblast or soda blast the whole thing to get rid of all the corrosion they'll and then uh, they'll meticulously repaint every piece that can be repainted they fabricate screws and nuts and machinery and rods and whatever uh, isn't re- redeemable from the original uh, thing. Uh, they carve out new wooden handles and, and parts and stain them beautifully. And then they put the thing back together. And if you're like me, you watch about the first two minutes and then you scroll to the end and watch the last 30 seconds. <laughs> but it's amazing. Uh, what, what I mean, granted, it's quite a few new parts, but still it's this, this old thing that was broken and useless gets restored to something Quite beautiful and and remarkable. Um, Seeking Christ and what pleases him 
requires the renovation of your mind. In the same way, <clears throat> what you think and the way you think is at issue. Right? Okay. Two or three of you agree. We need to be disassembled, carefully rebuilt, and refinished. So the death that we die in Christ is the beginning, not the end of our renewal. I would venture to say that is our disassembly. That's God taking us apart and laying out all the pieces and seeing what's recoverable and what just has to be remanufactured. And our participation in the process involves us diligently fixing our minds on the things that are above by diligently studying the scriptures so that we can be better acquainted with him and his character and what he loves and what he wants for us. While we're doing that, God is engaged over us in this process of shaving off the things that shouldn't be there, adding the things that should be, recutting threads wherever necessary, sandblasting off all of the garbage that he doesn't need us to have. And when he's done, we're made in the image of his perfect son who we claim has saved us from sin, right? The problem is, while he's reshaping the parts so that they function correctly, he's replacing things that don't work the way the, the way that he designed them to anymore because they've been corrupted by sin, uh, it hurts. That's the problem. It hurts. And I think sometimes we mistake that which is part of the process as an error. And I don't know if, if, if you're if you're simple-minded like I am, you watch, again, these videos, these restoration videos, and there are times where I go, well, now you've ruined it. Now there's no way this thing's going to work again. Lo and behold, the master craftsman, he knew what he was doing all along. Like, I'm watching, and I'm going, well, you just cut that too short. That's not going <laughs> to... We have the same experience as believers while God is renewing us as we're renewing our minds there are moments where we think things like this ah i am beyond hope i'm beyond redemption i'm beyond help i've rejected the gospel for too long i've sinned too much against grace to be recovered at this point. We think stuff like this and we're in pain and we're suffering and nobody seems to care. And what we don't realize is that is part of the process. God is still engaged. He's still interested. He's still working. We just don't feel like it because it hurts. Well, we have to discipline our minds to think in terms of eternity. So three new questions for you to consider in order to answer how do we seek Christ and what pleases him. Ready? Number one, what does your heart desire? Number two, what's been promised to you in eternity? And number three, what is your experience with this world and all it offers? I want you to really get these questions in mind. Number one.
another reason I look forward to being back at the high school. Um, number one, what does your heart desire? And look, I can't see your thoughts, and neither can anybody around you. Yes, God can. He knows your heart better than you do. So the answer to the question probably is not going to be all that helpful to you if you're going to be dishonest. What does your heart desire? Just be frank about it. Two, what has been promised to you in eternity? Now, if you're shrewd, and I think some of you are, you've jumped ahead of me. And what you've done is you've compared what your heart desires to what's been promised to you in eternity, and you've already seen a disparity there, right? And you go, "Uh uh-oh, probably not saved. Slow down. Third, what is your experience with this world and all that it offers? What does your heart desire? What has God promised you in eternity And what is your experience with this world and all that it offers? Now, look carefully at verses 3 and 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It is not evil. Listen, it's not evil to desire success commendation, a good reputation, or even the admiration of other people. It's not intrinsically evil to desire those things. But I need to let you know that it might be unrealistic. We live in a culture that demands that we not only tolerate, but now celebrate what God has called sin. Right? We all know this. Um, And unless you're willing to, I suspect that in years to come, you're going to get ridiculed for your convictions. In many quarters, this is already a a reality. So two weeks ago, the Supreme Court ruled that if you're a business owner that offers some kind of a service, you don't want to offer your service in the support of same-sex marriage. You don't have to. Prior to that, a few businesses got sued to oblivion and shut down because of their refusal to offer their services to a same-sex wedding. So what we want is we want to be understood as people who hold genuine religious convictions about what is acceptable and what is not, right? So I want the world to look at James and go, look, he's wrong. I think he's an idiot, but he sincerely believes the things that he believes, and he's not a jerk about it. That's all I'm looking for from the world. He's not a jerk. I disagree with him. Instead... We might be called bigots. Instead of winning people to Christ, we might be thrown into prison. Instead of impacting the culture, we might be hunted and persecuted. Instead of being promoted at work, you might be passed over as a result of your sincerely held religious convictions. I didn't join my colleagues in having their pictures all taken holding the pride flag last month. Matt did. I'm just joking. I'm totally kidding. He didn't either. But my refusal to be photographed with all of these folks holding the, whatever that, okay, let's not be subjective. My refusal to participate does not flow from my deep and abiding hatred for the homos. That's not at all what I'm thinking. I love them. And I think that anyone who knows me would testify as much. Any 
homosexual that knows me would testify as much. That I, I'm, I will be the first to be there to encourage and strengthen you when you're down and, and tell you the truth. Right? Okay, I hope you, you know, like you, you would say the same thing about you. As our society trends in the direction of calling evil good and good evil, though, I expect us to stand out by contrast. Nowhere does your Bible promise you that you're going to win. It's not in there. <clears throat> and, and it promises, on the contrary, that there's a price to be paid for following Jesus, for seeking him and for setting your mind on things above. Every, every born and raised in the Southern Baptist Church Christian starts to squirm a little bit when we talk about this because the faith prosperity movement has so inundated the gospel <clears throat> among Southern Baptists that we don't even realize it might be part of our DNA. But here's the fact. Hebrews 11 lays it out in stark terms. What happened to Abel? What happened to him? He brought a sacrifice, an offering to God, and, and God was pleased with it. What happened to him? What happened to Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel? What happened to all the prophets in the Old Testament who told the truth? What happened to the apostles? What happened to the servants in the early church? What happened to Jesus while he was on the earth? We don't win, we lose. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the sermon of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Okay, listen. Consider your calling, church. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. He doesn't say none of you. He just says not many. So if you need to be one of the wise ones, there's room for you here. Uh, not many of you. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. We don't win. We lose. We don't get to be the wise, strong, powerful, noble, high, praised people. We get to be the foolish, weak, powerless, ignoble, low, and despised people. And listen, our lives are unimpressive to the world around us. Look at us, gathered in this dump (laughs) to worship. You didn't all get to see the pictures of the wall in there swelled up with water behind the latex paint earlier this week because the dinglings who put in the air conditioner evidently drilled through our sealed roof in order to mount it. What? Why? We should have just canceled. Why expend all this energy? Deacons up here Wednesday through Friday doing stuff to get this place in order. Look where the TV used to hang over there. What, what are, come on. What about this is impressive to the world? Do you think, I think we can make this cool enough that if somebody comes in off the street, they're going to be like, maybe church is for me. <laughs> it's not going to happen. There's nothing, and that's not, uh, listen, it's not why I want to meet at the high school. It's just that I don't feel like fixing that stuff. <laughs> Let's go there. Well, we're here because we're seeking things above, amen? Trying to love one another in spite of a trillion reasons not to. Trying to serve our community where we can barely make ends meet. I promise you, and this is not to incite riot in your heart, but there's a church down the road apiece with plenty of money down that way huge campus, right? Why are we even bothering? Why why does Carrie have kids table up here all school year long? Like, isn't it bad enough being around them all day at work? You want to come up and put yourself through that? Because we're seeking the things above where Christ is. Why on earth, and trust me, it's not for the paycheck, do I spend 55, 60 hours a week at work, and then most of my Saturday prepping these messages. Why would we do that? Why did you guys spend the money corporately to bring Nick Kennecott out here to preach? Because we're seeking the things above where Christ is. We're not here to put on a show and impress the world. We're here because we want to know him better and be acquainted with the fellowship of of his sufferings. Because we believe he saved us from sin. I mean, you could have slept in today, you idiot. But here we are, believing something really important. You have died. 
Your life is hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The Holy Spirit is telling you to lay aside religious regulations. Lay aside legalistic practices. Lay aside frantic worship. Lay aside severe treatment of your body. Do this instead. Seek things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning in righteousness. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Like, one last people group I need to hit. Is foaming at the mouth while you listen to the propaganda that you call news, is that really helping you have peace, joy, love, patience, kindness, and self-control? Oh, COVID was a conspiracy. The vaccine's the mark of the beast. Trust Q, trust the plan. We're going to win. No, we're not. No, we're not. We're going to lose. The presidency, the Supreme Court, Congress, the Senate, all of it. Look what's been happening since 1787 when we put the Constitution in place. It's been eroding. And it was the best human beings could come up with. And what are we doing with it? Twerking half naked down the street in front of kids through the whole month of June because we're free. We're going to lose. Because right now our lives are hidden. Right now, they're hidden. The world can't see our victory, our life, or our reward. The promises of eternity aren't for here and now. Those are for later. Your life, your glorification, your success, your vindication, and all the pleasure that will come from that. You're right. That fantasy that you have, I'm going to be vindicated. Well, so is somebody else that you probably wronged. So temper your expectation, right? But yeah, your vindication is coming later. Those things are hidden with Christ waiting for you to finish this life. So keep on seeking the things which are higher up where Jesus is. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. It's a bit like hide and seek, except we're seeking him and he is hiding us. The world cannot see what we really are yet. But when he reveals us at the end, then we'll have victory. Amen?